you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 21. In just a minute, we're going to read verses 18 and 19. We have been, over the last month, comparing and contrasting uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ that is uh, uh, exciting and vibrant in your life over against crusty and stale religion. We began by talking about man's attempt to reach God by building a tower and talked about how religion is just another attempt to do something that we were never intended to do, to reach into the heavens. We are uh, who we are. We have life and we have hope because God has come to us rather than the opposite. We talked about the law and the rituals of the Jewish faith, the pharisaical uh, rituals and, uh, and, and concepts that said, if you're going to make it to heaven, you have to be good. And we looked around the crowd and determined that there were no good enough people here. And I don't see any today either, amen? amen. Maybe you're sitting by someone who looks better than average, but they're not good enough. I promise you. We also talked about the prodigal son story last week and focused on the older brother who Jesus planted in the story to be representative of religion who refused to party, who refused to have any fun, who refused to accept that grace and mercy uh, were valid and really the only way into the party. So we've talked a lot about religion We've talked a lot about how that pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ has already done and wants to do in your life. In this story that we're going to look at today, in order to understand it, you have to realize that the greatest enemy of Jesus during his ministry here on earth was religion. Practically every story that he told had some element of him saying, here's how God is. Here's how wonderful, loving, benevolent, generous, merciful, gracious God is. And here's what you've been taught. Here's what religion has said to you. And so Jesus was constantly making that comparison that we've done throughout this last month. And the story today takes place... uh, on the road between Jerusalem and Bethany. Now, you will know as we look at this story, because the first part of, uh, of Luke 21 talks about Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry, and then right after that, here's this story. So it's like Jesus went back to Bethany to spend the night with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We've talked about them. And he's making his way back to Jerusalem because he spent that week before his death ministering to people in Jerusalem. He's making his way back, and along the journey, it's early in the morning, Jesus gets hungry and decides that he wants to eat a fig. Now, we have made the fig a lot better in America because we added Newton to fig, right? But I've eaten just a a fig before, and it's not that good. Without the Newton, you don't want a fig. And so it's not really, really that he was looking for something good to eat. So remember that in this story. 
he sees a fig tree beside the road. The fig tree looks to be a healthy tree. It, it looks to be a tree that would bear not only a lot of leaves and figs, and, and the fig tree, if you study it, is one of those kind of trees that if there's leaves there, you can probably count on the fact that in the middle of the leaves, the figs are there, and they'll, when there are no leaves there, there are no figs, just the way the fig tree works. So he's walking into Jerusalem. He has been dealing with the hassle of the religious leaders for years, for a couple of years. And they had seemed to really focus in. He knew about the plot to kill him. He, he knew about uh, what lie ahead that week, that holy week. And I want you to see his reaction, and I want you to kind of understand why Jesus reacted so uh, harshly uh, in this particular situation. Verse 18, now in the morning he returned to the city, and he was hungry. It always amazes me when I see a sentence like that, because when I think of Jesus, it's very, very easy for me to understand his divinity. But when I see statements like that, that tells me that Jesus was a lot more like me and a lot more like you than I sometimes think about. The needs that we have, he had. The, the, the hunger, the thirst, he had. Bible says he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree beside the road, he came to it and he found nothing on it but leaves. Now, I don't know how you would expect Jesus to react to finding his breakfast missing. And I'm not sure exactly what caused him to react this way, but I think I know. Here's what he said. He actually placed a curse on the tree. Now, people go out of here all the time saying stuff, quoting me, that I never said, by the way. So I want to be very clear. Jesus did not cuss the tree, okay? And if you say I said that, God be with you. Jesus placed a curse on the tree, and that curse was simply this. Let no more fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the scripture said that was the end of the tree. It literally withered away. So your first reaction to this story might be, wow, that was extreme. That was intense. I can't imagine Jesus' kind, loving, benevolent Jesus taking out his misery on a tree. Why would he be so upset just because there were no figs on the fig tree? Well, have you ever been somewhere, first of all, where you expected a certain thing? Maybe you even anticipated it. You were excited about what you were going to get when you got there. And when you finally arrived, it wasn't all that hot. You didn't find what you wanted. When you looked beneath the leaves, there wasn't any figs there. Let me tell you some things that have happened like that in my life, and maybe it will prompt your memory. Not too long ago, I went to the Montgomery Inn. Now, when you go to the Montgomery Inn, what are you thinking? Ribs, right? Come on, you're from Cincinnati or nearby. When I got there, here's what the waiter, the first thing he said to me, my server said this, we're out of ribs. And I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> well, that's a letdown, isn't it? 
Can you imagine that? Montgomery Inn being out of ribs. First time I ever got to go to Coney Island. I was a fourth grader at the Hebron Elementary School. All year long, we suffered through school because the last day of the year, they would load us up on buses and take us to Coney Island. Testify with me. Amen? Coney Island was for old people, right? So I made it to Coney Island. I had lots of plans. I had uh, planned my route out for the day. I was going to ride the wild mouse. I was going to go to the Ferris wheel and the, uh, and the, uh, the uh, what do you call that that goes around? Carousel. Thank you. That's a, an elusive word. And I had plans to meet up with my beautiful fourth grade girlfriend and ride the Lost River. Ooh. If you say I said that, I'll deny it too, by the way. Well, I had anticipated a great big day, but when I got there, a friend of mine convinced me to eat this and eat that and eat this, and then we got on a machine called the rotor. Remember the rotor? The rotor, you'd go up in it, and it was a a cylinder, and you would stand against the wall, and it would get going so fast around that you stuck to the wall. Let me tell you something that I proved to the world that day. When you grow ill and your stomach reacts violently, not everything sticks to the wall. I had anticipated a wonderful, wonderful day at Coney Island, and my day was spent in the infirmary. Every time I go to Rupp Arena, I anticipate a victory. Sometimes it doesn't turn out that way. We've all gone places, looked for things, expected things that failed to come through for us. And that's kind of what was happening here with Jesus. But here's what I think was really at the heart and core of what was happening. Jesus looked at this tree, this fig tree that held such promise, that held the promise of uh, of nourishment, that was full and leafy and, and looked so good. And he realized that it had the appearance of of something healthy, of a healthy tree. It had the appearance, but listen to me, guys, it lacked substance. It lacked heart. It It lacked what its very purpose was. It was less than authentic, less than genuine. It had the appearance, but not the substance. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the church in Jesus' day, had the appearance of godliness. Matter of fact, I want you to write this down. They had the appearance of godliness, and Jesus said this over and over again, but they lacked the power. The religious leaders of his day talked a good game. They had this righteous look about them. Have you ever seen a righteous person? You can just look at them and think, they look holy. They don't go to church here, by the way. 
And, and these folks were walking around clothed in their finery with these pious looks on their face. They were bragging about their resume and their credentials, talking about how many laws they followed and how they met the ritual uh, to, the, to, to its very uh, most precise point. They were sacrificing stuff. They were getting fat and rich. And, 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 and this whole concept broke the heart of God. Matter of fact, it angered the heart of God. It angered Jesus Christ. And so when he saw that fig tree, leafy and full, but void of figs, void of anything important, it literally set him off. In much the same fashion as in the temple when he cast out those who were making money off of their religion. Jesus hated false religion. And it amazes me when I think about that story and when I think about the reality of what religion looked like in Jesus' day and how the whole New Testament really is a response to religion. It's a new covenant, a new way to reach God, a new way to make heaven. It is a response, a retraction of everything that the religious leaders of Jesus' day stood for. And the sad part is that some 2,000 years later, we still gravitate back towards religion, don't we? We still gravitate back towards appearance. Now, in just a little while, when you depart, maybe you got one on the way in, you're going to be given a card, an invite card, to invite people to come to be a part of a great big crowd here next Sunday. And when you give those cards out to your friends and neighbors that don't go to church, and if they offer up an excuse about why they don't go to church, you know what that number one excuse will be? Anybody have a clue? I don't go to church because I used to go to church and there were hypocrites there. Well, yeah. Every single person in this room has some level of hypocrisy. None of us are exactly what we look like. Our substance and our appearance don't jive. None of us really want everyone else to know the things we do wrong. I think we should designate one person on each row today to stand up and tell us everything you've done wrong this week. Let's vote. One against nothing right now. So if you're in the middle, fill us your first. Tell us what Clayton did wrong instead. That's better, that's easier. None of us want people to know who we really are at times. What we have on the inside looks different than what's on the outside. There is a level of hypocrisy in all of our lives. And, and we think, here's what we think. If I could just start to behave right, if I could just quit doing this and start doing this, or maybe kick this part of my life to the side and choose another path, Maybe get rid of this obsession, rid of, uh, of this addiction, rid of this sin habit. If I could just start over again, then I would look good to God. 
When in reality, that's not what God is asking us to do at all. Certainly there are things in our life that need to be fixed. Certainly there are sins in our life that need to be forgiven. Certainly there are burdens in our life that need to be laid down. But what God is saying is don't get more religious, get more dependent on me. Because only I can make those changes. If you're tired of living a life today where what you know to be substance is nowhere near what you appear, then today is a chance for God to move into your life and change all of that. You see, in all of our lives, there's a barrier there between who we are and who we want to appear to be. There's a gulf. Often we have a form of godliness but we don't have the power. So I want to answer a question this morning that I often get asked. How do I know for sure, in some form or another, this question is on all of our lips. How do I know for sure, first of all, that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm going to go to heaven? How do I know that Jesus lives in my heart? And secondly, if you kind of are assured or feel good about your salvation, how do you know that you're not that hypocrite and there's some power in your life? Well, the Bible talks about two separate groups of things that are evident in Christians' lives, in Christ followers' lives. And the first are called the gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit include preaching, proclamation, prophecy, hospitality, benevolence. They are, are, are things that God caused you to be able to do that other people may not be able to do. And God brings a congregation together, gifted differently, so that congregation, so the church can reach everyone, can minister in lots of different ways. And if you have that kind of giftedness in some level or another, and I believe that everyone has a gift... Every person in this room has a gift. There's something that God created you to be able to do so that his kingdom could be advanced. And if you're utilizing those gifts and if you see people uh, gravitating towards those gifts and what you can do, then you know that the Spirit is evident in your life. Now when I talk about the Holy Spirit, I want to stop and say this. If you remember a few weeks after this fig tree incident, after Jesus had been hung on the cross, buried, rose again, he ascended into heaven. And as he ascended into heaven, his disciples were distraught, and the angels spoke from heaven and said, guys, don't worry about it because something is coming. A replacement is coming. Hope is coming. And that hope was the Holy Spirit. Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit speaks to every person alive, convincing, convicting, drawing us to God, but that when we make that decision to walk for Christ, when we make that decision to be connected to Christ, to be a follower, then the Holy Spirit floods us, fills us. Scripture says we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. I got Riley all the way under. I dunked him good today. He's got a double dose of the Holy Spirit. And when that happened in your life, when God flooded into your life, you got the Holy Spirit. And these gifts that we've already talked about became a byproduct of your life. 
There's another gift that God gave us along with the Holy Spirit. And these are called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. And you'll find them in Galatians chapter 5. And here's what the Bible says about the fruit of the Spirit. Is that just because you've accepted Jesus into your life, just because you're now walking with Him, connected to Him, you're now a believer, a follower, you get the fruit. There, everyone in here who knows the Lord is fruity. Amen? In the best way you can say that. It's there. It's there somewhere. Now, many of us do everything we possibly can to suppress the fruit of the Spirit. And and when Paul was teaching to the church at Galatians and wrote them a letter, he outlined for us what those fruit are. And we've done several sermon series on these over the last few years. But I want to remind you, the fruit of the Spirit, first of all, and there's a reason why this is first, because it's foundational. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. If you are some sad, solemn, religious geek, you're not filled with the Spirit. If you don't have joy, now I don't mean temporary happiness and then temporary sadness, but I mean joy that moves beyond the circumstances of life, then you're not a Christ follower. Peace. Peace to me is the opposite of worry. So can I tell all of you today who are certified worriers, who are already worrying about how long this sermon's going to last, <laughs> don't allow anyone to rob you of your peace because God promised it to you. Patience. Man, that's a troubling one, isn't it? Anybody here very patient? You can come live in my house and we can steal that from you in a meeting. <laughs> Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. And I want you to grab a hold of that last one for just a second, self-control. And I want you to see that if you look at it on the surface, it's completely different than all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, fruit is the evidence of God's presence in your life. The leaves detract and cover the fruit. But all of these things are here. A relationship with God starts at the beginning point. You get love. You start to love like God loves. You lose your harshness. You become gentle. You lose your meanness. You become kind. You lose your wearing. You become peaceful because you now have the heart of God. You learn to even be patient because you have the heart of God. And when you get down to the end of the line, you learn discipline so that you don't get to places you don't need to be. You learn to control your urges and your desires. For some reason, religion 
started at the back end of the fruit. You see that? Religion says, here's how we're going to do it. You're going to come to God. You're going to come into our church. You're going to be a part of our family. And we're going to tell you exactly how you behave. There are some churches that you go into, unless you can prove your good behavior to them, you can't get in. There are some denominations, there are some folks who who claim the name of Jesus, and all they focus on is exactly what the Pharisees did. All they focus on is self-control. And that is a completely backwards look at what God's trying to do in your life. God's saying, you come, you connect with me, and I will fill you with all of these good things, and somewhere along the way, in the midst of loving me and loving others and and living in peace, you will learn what's right and what's wrong and how to control yourself. When you try to do it the other way, when you try to quit doing the things that you know you shouldn't be doing, when you try to, to, to lay down your sin without picking up God's love first, you'll fail every time. You'll always be addicted. You'll always be obsessed. You'll always be broken and worn down. You'll always feel empty as long as you try to fix yourself without God's help. Religion had it completely backwards. Religion still does. I want to know that God desires to pour all of these things into my spirit, into my heart, so that I can live for Him. I want to know that because I'm related to Him, He's going to fill me with these things. Not because I was good enough, but because He was. Focus on things of substance. Desire things of substance. Narrow the gulf, the gap between who you are and who you pretend to be. And God will bless you. A couple things I want to say in closing today. Starts with a question. Why do you think that you're on this planet? Why do you think God created you? Why are you here? That's a deep question, isn't it? Maybe bigger than we can answer today. But the scripture indicates that there are several purposes for your existence, several phenomenal purposes. And that if your life is pointed towards something purposeful, first of all, you'll realize that you're on this planet to glorify God. You were created for praise. You were created to make God look good. In the creative process, he did a lot of things, and then he created man and woman. And he said, this is a good deal. He created us for relationship with him, and he created us so that we might make him look good. Kind of works that way with kids. We have kids and we're hoping against hope they're going to make us look good, aren't we? That's why God created you. God also created you to be salt and light. 
He placed these fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in you, so that you could be a contagious Christ follower. So that other people would see the goodness in you. Not the hypocrisy, but the goodness in you. Other people would see Jesus in you. And you could be influential in their life. Your purpose is not only to make it to heaven, but to be sure that you take somebody with you. That you have folks who follow you there. Or beat you there, actually. And so many times, instead of understanding our purpose, instead of knowing what God is really up to in our lives, we, we, we miss the purpose. Religion and what we stand for and, and, and all the rules and laws that we have cause us to miss the purpose. Religion shuts the door of heaven on people. misses the purpose and focuses on the procedure. Do this, do that, do this, do that, and do it now, and do it this way. Religion focuses on the ritual and not the Redeemer. Pharisees had a ritual, didn't they? If you sinned, you came to the temple on just the right day, at just the right time, and said just the right words, and sacrificed just the right animal. They had a ritual, and they missed the Redeemer. Happens in church a lot, doesn't it? We have a ritual. I bet most of you who are regular attenders here practically do the same thing every Sunday morning, don't you? You get up, you eat the same bowl of Cheerios, You dress in the same type of costume, you put on the same smile, you get in the same car, you ride here with the same people, you park in the same parking lot, go to the same Bible study, some first, some last, you sit in the same place. I can tell you where folks who are here every Sunday are sitting without even looking back there at you because you have a ritual. And we scream to heaven, God, look at me. Look at me, God. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. God, I'm not down there in the lucky duck today. I'm at church. God, look, when the offering plate got passed, I put in my share. I didn't spend it on myself last night. God, look how good I look today. Sniff me from heaven to see how clean I am today, God. Look at me. I am doing all the right things, and I've been doing them for years. And when we say that to God in our spirit, here's what he says. What about your heart? How much do you love me? How obedient are you? How joyful are you? What about your heart? You, hear, you see, here's what scares me, guys. When I read this story, it scares me. Because I'm a hypocrite, too. I'm ritualistic, too. I'm afraid that when God looks at my life, 
he sees a heck of a lot more leaves than he does fruit. (laughs) I'm afraid that when Jesus starts to peel back through the leaves of my life, that what I deserve is his curse and not his grace. When he starts to consider the substance, I'm afraid I'm lacking. You ever feel that way? Just a game. Pretending. Faking. Leafy. It's what causes you to doubt your salvation. It causes you to doubt your purpose. Because you forget what really matters to God. You forget. So this morning, what's the truth about you? Time to be transparent, isn't it, and say, God, I'm not who I should be. I'm not even close. And I may have fooled a lot of people, but I haven't fooled myself, and I can't fool you. Time to get transparent and say, God, fill me with your spirit and cast all the rest of this junk out right now you see that's the redeemer and when you say that prayer you understand that you can't do it by yourself you're not strong enough to get good enough and that's why Jesus died that's why that very week he died Because religion could never do what the Redeemer did. Could never do what he did. And so I invite you to a whole new way of thinking today. To a whole new way of living where it's all about him and not about the ritual. Not about your sin but your salvation. The altar will be open. You can share in communion a divine holy moment where you celebrate what Jesus did for you. You can pray for others. Pray for anybody in this room. We're all hypocrites. And you can be honest before God. And I promise you, listen to me, that's when things will change. That's when things will change. Father, thank you. Thank you for offering us this, this, this chance to be different. I mean really different. This chance to, to think and behave and, and believe something brand new. Something that is life-changing. Something that matters. Father, would you replace the leafiness of our life with real substance? Would you teach us today that it all begins with love? And that we really can be different and make a difference. That we really can find hope, peace, salvation. 
Our lives can change right now. Right now. By running to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ask you to stand with me? I ask you to come to this altar, to come to this place of communion, to pray, to reach out, to change. Right now.